Kings chapter 8, pray for us, uh, verse 7. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadid, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him, even every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burdened, and came and stood before him, and said, Thy son Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go say to him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord hath shewed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with a sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. And Hazael said, But what, is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath shewed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldest surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face, so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his stead. I'll be honest with you this morning. I, uh, the Lord had, had gave me that scripture probably a week ago and just never was the right time to preach it. And, uh, and when He gave it to me, I was nervous about it. And, and the weeks went by and I'm still probably more nervous about it now than I was. Uh, there are times that He... Uh, there's an old expression that there's not a lot of meat on the bone and you just sort of wonder where it's going to come from. And so I don't have much today, but... I want to talk to you just about the depravity of a man. Uh, we believe, it's in our articles of faith, we believe that men are totally and utterly depraved. And, and you say, what does that even mean? Uh, uh, it means that, there. listen, you, uh, you live in a culture and a society that, that loves to uh, hear how good they are and, uh, and, and we feed on that. Our egos and our pride begins to draw up and, and we feed on that and, and we're living in a generation where we say, and I've heard people say even in the religious world, that there is a spark of goodness in every soul uh, born to this world. I, I would disagree with that vehemently that we are totally depraved, that there's nothing good in us, that, that you weren't born with a spark of a good nature, that you were born in sin and shaping in iniquity. And when you came forth from your mother's womb, you came forth and was born a sinner. Nothing good in you. And nothing good in me. I mean totally depraved and without and apart from anything good and holy. Apart from anything. Apart from any knowledge of what's right and what's good. And so the thing about it when you're that young even though you're guilty you're not held accountable from a legal standing from God. You are not yet accountable but that does not make you good. You are still guilty, you're just not yet accountable. Uh, and so uh, it's hard sometimes for men 
uh, to see their depravity because they they don't want to see it. But I've heard uh, maybe Ethan say a few times uh, he'll talk about the gospel mirror. Uh, and it is that. And uh, you know why people don't like the Word of God? Uh, we live in a culture, if you say God, it, it really don't upset most folk when you say that. Uh, you get to talking about Jesus. Uh, and they begin to be offended at that man. Uh, they be, why do they get offended? Because he came preaching that there is none good. Uh, no, not one. Uh, and people don't like to hear that. Uh, but even in the Old Testament, it's recorded that uh, everything that we good uh, about us. Every good thing that we think we are is nothing but filthiness and, and rotten in the sight of God. Uh, and it's hard to get people to see that. Uh, but I'm afraid if you never see your depravity, you'll never see the need to seek a Savior. Uh, that you'll never see that great need uh, that is upon every man, woman, and child uh, that has ever been born. That uh, you need somebody greater than you. Uh, somebody bigger than you. Uh, to reach down on the inside of you and change you from the inside out. But we are living in a generation who thinks themselves to be good, thinks themselves to be pure. We're living in a generation that says they are so enlightened and we're living on things of the past that our way of salvation has no place in this life anymore because they're so much more enlightened than to believe as some old dusty document. I want to tell you something today. Uh, that old dusty book that contains within it the very breath and life of God Almighty. Uh, he said the words that I speak to you, uh, they are spirit and they are life. Uh, we talked in Sunday school this morning uh, about Jesus raising Lazarus uh, and the widow's son at Nain uh, and uh, Jairus' daughter and uh, different ones that he raised from the dead. Can I be honest with you and just preach for a minute this morning if you've never been saved by grace you are dead. You're not alive. If God has ever one time revealed to you you are a sinner. What He was saying to you is you are totally depraved. There is a, I think it's the Mormons believe there are those that believe today a man can pick himself up by his own bootstraps and stand next to the glory of God and become deity. That's a lie from the pits of hell this morning. You cannot pick yourself up. And how do I know that? Because if you are dead, a dead man can't do a thing. A dead man has no way to make himself whole. No way to make himself alive. I just read to you uh, about a about a man who uh, who was next in line. He was a servant to the king of Syria. Uh, this king of Syria's name was Ben Hadid, and Ben Hadid hated the man of God named Elisha uh, because different times in the past uh, Ben Hadid had been bested uh, by Elisha and by Elisha's God. A few chapters back, uh, you see Ben Hadid send a host. Uh, and an army of Stephen Hadid a war against Israel and he came against Israel and he would uh, he would go down to slay the king of Israel and every time he got to where he knew the king was the king was not there even though every every indication every uh, every spy that he had had told him this is where the king of Israel but what had happened uh, was God had told Elisha 
God had told His man to go warn the king of Israel not to go there and not to go there. And so time and time again that happened. And Ben had it finally had enough. And he asked his, his sergeants and his military men, we've got a traitor in our midst. There's a mole in our midst. He said, how does the king of Israel know exactly where we're going to attack him? And they said, oh king, uh, 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 the king of Israel knows because there is a man of God named Elisha. And the things that you speak in your bedchamber, somehow this man of God knows your very secret. And God had revealed to that man of God. And so Ben-Hadid had sent an army, a whole army after one man. He sent an army after this man named Elisha. He sent such an army of chariots and horses for one man. He sent a whole, uh, a whole army. And they gathered around. And Elisha had a servant uh, that looked at this Syrian army. And that servant began to get scared. Uh, that servant cried out, to Elisha, and he said, Oh, Master, what shall we do? How are we going to overcome this? And Elisha said, God, he said, uh, First of all, Gehazi, his servant, he said, There are more that be with us than, than are with him. And he said, God, I pray, open my servant's eyes that he may see. And the Bible said, God opened the eyes of the servant. And he said he looked around and he saw horses and chariots of fire surrounding them. And you know the Bible said the angels of God encompass those who fear Him. There are, I know it don't seem like it in our generation, in our culture, with the godlessness of this land. And let me assure you today, church, there is more that is with us. That is with Him. Amen. And maybe not on, the, on this earth, but there is a host of heaven that stands with us. Amen. And there is nothing that goes on on this earth without the knowledge. And the Bible said that we, it said we have our angels and they have charges concerning our station. That's what it says. And He said, so greater is He, John put it like that, greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Same thing. But Elisha said, open his eyes. And the man of God, the servant, opened his eyes and he saw that. And he was satisfied that God could deliver. But Elisha prayed that he would strike the Syrian army with blindness. And God did. And Elisha led the army of the Syrians into the host of Samaria. Into the lion's den, so to speak. And then he treated them good. He wouldn't allow the king of Israel to even kill those men. He said, you feed them, you clothe them, you bathe them, and you send them on their way. And he sent them on their way. And they came back, no doubt, and said, this man Elisha has bested you one more time. You see, Ben-Hadid knew of Elisha. Because Ben-Hadid had a, had a captain of his host named Naaman that Elisha, through the power of God, had healed of leprosy. He knew Elisha. He didn't know Elisha's God, but he knew how powerful he was. And so there came a day Ben Haddad got sick. And he got real sick. It doesn't say what it was, I don't guess, but he got on his deathbed. And he sent his servant Hazael. And he said, you go find this man of God. And you see, even though he hated the man of God, I've had people come to me that have never darkened the church in their life, but when they've been in enough trouble, they will seek out a man of God. Amen. And so that's what happened. This man sought out 
He said, I'm going to die on this bed. He told his servant, Isaiah, he said, you go and find this man of God. Uh, the, the word actually came to him. Elisha was on his way to Damascus. And, and, and the king heard it. And he told his servant, he said, you go find him. And you ask this man of God, am I going to recover of this disease? Yeah, a simple question. He just wanted to know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die. That's it. One question. And the Bible said he took Elisha gifts. It said 40 camels. 40 camels of gifts. Can you imagine that train coming into Damascus, seeking out the man of God. 40 camels worth of the goods of Syria. Laden down on those camels. And the train of camels came. And Elisha, the man of God, went out to meet him. And he said, My sir, my king, ben Hadid, king of Syria, sent me to ask you, shall he recover of this disease? Or is it going to take his life? And Elisha said, well, the Bible said Elisha, I just looked at him. See, in that moment, God began to reveal some things to the man of God. And God doesn't let His people walk around in the dark. There are things sometimes He chooses to make known. And so Elisha, the man of God, just looked at Hazael. And he looked at him so long. And God began to say, and you see when the brother preached the other night about all it took was for Satan to tempt Eve with that fruit. And once she saw it, and once she learned that it make her wise, and once she began to look upon it, Hazael had already in his heart devised a plan. He wanted to become king of Syria. And Elisha at that moment saw into the soul of this man saw into the heart of this man I knew exactly who he was and Elisha looked at him eyeball to eyeball and Hazael grew angry and he turned away he turned away and Elisha wept and this man said why are you crying and Elisha said because I know what you're going to do to my people I know the, the carnage I know the destruction. He said you're even going to take pregnant women and rip out their children from their womb. And the man said, Surely I'm not a dog that I should do this. He never thought he was that bad. Can I tell you there is danger. Danger in thinking anything just or highly of yourself. Now, Brother Marty preached last night that sin will take you further than you ever dreamed it would. That you begin to dabble in it just a little bit and pretty soon you're covered from head to toe. Isaiah says it like this. And I said one time I would never preach from Isaiah 1 again because the last time I did, six days later I had a heart attack. But I remember preaching from that and I remember saying there is no soundness in you that your whole heart is sick and your whole head is sick. He said, from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot, there is no soundness in you. And I remember saying we do things that are bad for us, even though we know not to do them. And I remember saying I eat at Debbie's about four times a week. And I've got a bad family heart problem, but, but still I did it. Six days later I had a heart attack. And I said, I'll never preach from that again. But Isaiah said it absolutely right. There is no soundness in you. And you think... You think that you're not depraved. You think that there's still something good in you. My friend, if you're lost, you're dead. 
There is nothing that you can do. But I thought about a man, there is something that can be done, but nothing you can do in and on your own self. I thought about a man at the pool of Bethesda. It was a place. Let me finish up with Elisha. That man said, I will never, I'm not a dog that I should do that kind of thing. And Elisha said, God has showed me you shall be king over Syria. And the man went back to his master king and the next day, probably under the guise, I imagine the king was running a fever and had probably asked for a cool damp cloth to be put over his face to cool his body temperature. I'm assuming that's what it was. But this man, by craftiness and by deception, grabbed a real thick piece of cloth and almost, I guess, we would consider what waterboarding is. He put that wet cloth over his master king's face and the man died. Now, just just a few sentences before, he was telling the man of God, I'm not a dog. I'm not as evil as you think that I am. But Elisha and God knew exactly what this man was going to do. Was it foreordained? I'm careful when I use that word. God has foreknowledge, but man has responsibility. In other words, God knows the end from the beginning, but His will runs parallel with your choices. They never intersect. God has the foreknowledge, and in some cases predestined, but man has responsibility to God for his own choices. And so... He was as bad. You can read on a few chapters over. And this man became king of Syria. And he did exactly what Elisha said he was going to do. He was king of Syria 40 years and warred against him all of his life. As a matter of fact, Elisha on his deathbed had told the king of Israel at that time. He said, you take a bow in your hand. And he said, this is the deliverance of Syria of this man. The same man. He's warring with us. And he said, you take that bow and you shoot an arrow and that'll be deliverance. And he did. And he said, now Elisha removed his hand. He said, now you strike the ground. All you've got to do is draw back. It's so easy a kid could do it. Draw back your bow. Turn it loose. And the Bible said the man did. The king did that three times. And then he stopped. And Elisha said, why did you stop? He said, I just told you uh, the shooting of that bow and arrow uh, was the deliverance in Syria. And you shot three times and then you stopped. And he said, you will have victory over Hazael three times. He said, you should have kept shooting. Let me tell you something today, church. I know you're tired. I know we've been in revival a week. I'm telling you, we've got a quiver full of the gospel arrows. All we've got to do is turn them loose and let God direct them into the hearts of where He shoots. But so many times we just stop. We just put down our bow and put down our arrows and we hang our hearts on the willows. And we don't have victory like that. But this man warred against Israel 40 years. And when people got their hearts right, they would have victory over it. Much like it is today. But my point is, he was so much more depraved than he ever thought. Sinner friend, if you're here today and lost in sin, if you could only... You see, our problem is, we compare ourselves with men. What do you mean by that? I mean, we compare how good that we are 
compared to other people around us. Well, I'm as good as them. I've heard that excuse. I'm not going to church with a bunch of hypocrites. I'm as good as them. But you see, today, sinner friend, if you could, you don't judge yourself by those around you. You use the light of the gospel mirror and you use the light of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when you line yourself up next to His Word and next to His life, you will see how to pray that you really are. The problem is we don't see our sin the way God sees our sin. We don't see our sin as being so filthy and so black and so dark. Let me tell you this. Your sin was so deadly and so dark that the darling of of God, the apple of His eye, His darling Son came and had to die to save you and to cleanse you from it. You don't realize how dark of a sin it really is. But you're depraved. But I thought of a man at the pool of Bethesda. The Bible said that in those pools it was a sheep market and there was a gate there. I suppose it was a place that they would drive cattle. I suppose it was a place that uh, that the movers and uh, money changers in the temple uh, when they would uh, take sheep and sell them at a, a ridiculous price to those coming to Jerusalem, they would probably take them down to the pool at Bethesda because it was a sheep gate and a sheep market and they'd probably clean them up and wash them. Uh, but in that place, where cattle and sheep uh, were long to come. Uh, There was five porches and in those five porches there was a multitude of blind, uh, blind, lame, halt and withered and sick and they came and they just sat in those porches. I want you to walk with me 2,000 years ago. I walk in the midst of those porches. I don't know about you, but this week I have felt and saw the power of God come down. There have been a couple of nights in particular that that conviction was in this place. I mean the power was so thick and so heavy. And it broke my heart as I could hear. I told somebody the other day, I said, we had sinners weeping. And when I say weeping, I mean weeping. I mean, you could have probably heard them at the square. Those shrieks, those wails, those cries, those gut-wrenching, heart-piercing squeals from them seeking salvation. I want you to walk with me in those porches. I want you to look at their faces. I want you to see their anguish. I want you to hear their cry. I want you to see their desperation. It was good sometimes to see. And so walk with me in those porches. And we would have probably never heard about Bethesda. Probably never known about that sheep market. Probably never heard about those five porches of six folk. Why did they even come there? Because it was believed, according to the Scripture, that at a certain season an angel... I don't know if you could visually see the angel. No idea. But the Bible says that a certain season an angel was wont to come and trouble the water. I don't know if you could see the angel or if you just saw a bubbling or a moving of the water. But whoever was first into that pool, once the angel stirred the waters, 
was healed of whatever disease that he had. And so in these porches lay those multitudes uh, waiting for the moving of the water, uh, waiting for the power to get just right. But as many as jumped in, can you imagine seeing the bubbling come up uh, and five porches full of people, uh, full out, pale male, uh, just running and jumping into that pool? But out of all that jumped in, everybody save one would always come out disappointed. They came out the same way that they went in. You might say, preacher, I've prayed. And I've came out the same way that I went in. Brother Marty's preached to you a few nights this week, what you're doing's not working. And he wouldn't try to hurt your feelings, neither am I. But clearly, if that be the case, then he's right in that assessment, what you're doing ain't working. You need something else. And so these people in these porches, what they were doing wasn't working. I mean, they wasn't any better. And there was one man in particular who had for 38 years, and probably most of those 38 years was spent right there. 38 years he waited. We'd have probably never heard of Bethesda or the porches or the pool or the sheep market. But there was one faithful day that the Son of God made His presence known. There was one faithful day that somebody walked into that sheep market that had never been there before. And all of those people and all of those porches, had they had any idea who that man was, they would have turned away from the pool and went to that man. Named Jesus. But they didn't know. So many times, sinner free, you've been so very close to the power and presence of the one that can help you. And maybe you don't even know how close you've been. If you've been in this place this week, whether you realize it or not, that you've been brushed by the hand and touch of God, you've been in the presence of His power. Whether you know that or not. God's people know that. There's nothing like the power in the presence of the Spirit. But they had no idea this, this Jesus of Nazareth, this lowly Galilean, walked into the sheep market pool. And he looked, and out of all of those porches, somebody had a testimony a while ago. I don't know why God saves Nicholas. I don't know why. And I said, I've never figured out the why. I just know this man for 38 years had been wondering, waiting. And Jesus came by, and out of all of those in the porches, out of all the multitude, grace set His hand on this one man. Why? I have no idea. Other than the Bible says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and on whom I will, I will harden. You might say, preacher, that don't sound like a God that's fair. He can do what He pleases. He's God Almighty. We are not the question. I could ask Him the same question the night that I got saved, seven and a half billion people on this earth and he walked through every porch for seven billion people and he laid his hand on me. Ain't that something? Think about that. He didn't have to do that. There were seven and a half billion people that needed a Savior and he sought me out. Me. And he did the same for you. Why? I don't know. 
I have no idea. Other than the fact what the brother said last night, because he's good, because he's so good, out of all of those porches, that grace had set its mark on one man. It was the man who had probably been there the longest. It was the one who was probably in the most horrible condition. Maybe that's why, I don't know. But on one man, and he just went up to him, and he just asked him, will thou be made whole? Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to do you want to leave? Are you sick of the pool of Bethesda? Do you want to leave out of here, sinner friend? Are you sick of the way it's been going? If you're and maybe you're not satisfied and been saved, are you sick of the way it's been going? Do you want to leave this place today different than you came? There is one that can help you. You cannot do that. This man, he said, but I have no power. He was right. He was right in that assessment. He told Jesus, sir, I have no power. But while I'm trying to get to the pool, another steps in before me. I have no man to help me. I have no power. A dead man has no power. Juanita said last night about Brother Tim Cody. You see, the thing is, we're either alive or we're dead. I know the Catholics teach a place that's in between, and I'm not railing on there. There's Catholics that are saved. I'm not railing. But I will say this. They are flat out wrong and, and causing damnation to come upon men by that doctrine. They teach that there is such a place that it's an in-between, a purgatory, that, that you're not really dead, but you're not really alive. There is no such thing. You are either living or you're dead. Amen. That's why we call it the new birth. Because there has to be a moment life comes in. And because what happens was, getting back to Juanita's analogy, the night that you became lost, you know what happened? You died. Spiritually, you died. You are no longer under the protection of a holy God. You died. And there is nothing because you're dead. There is nothing you can do in death to get life. And there is nothing you can do except somebody bigger than you comes by. Ezekiel chapter 16, God said, I saw you. Talking about a nation, but it works as individuals. He said, I saw you polluted in your own blood. He said, you were just a baby and somebody threw you out. He said, nobody grabbed you and swaddled you. Nobody bathed you and washed you. And nobody took care of you. But he said, when I saw you laying in that field, you had no hope. You were a baby polluted in your own blood. There was nothing you could do in a helpless condition such as that. But God said, I looked at you and I said, live. And you lived. That's no different than a sinner being born again. He walked by this man and he asked him, do you want to get better? That's a question worth asking. Do you really want to be saved? He won't save you against your will. Do you want to be saved? Yes, I believe that you do. You can't do it. You have to see yourself totally depraved. 
nothing inside of you worthy or meriting salvation, but knowing in yourself to be dead, the only thing that you can do is cry out for mercy to the one who gives life. And this man said, I have no power. And Jesus said, that's not what I ask. Do you want to be made whole? And he said, if you do, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now it doesn't say anything about the man's faith. But the man had to have some kind of faith. For 38 years he had been laying. His muscle had atrophy. They had weakened. But you know what? It didn't. It was, salvation is not a process. Let me back up. It can be a process from the time he tells you you're lost to the time you get saved. Yes, that is a process. The birth is instant. One time, that quick. It's just like Brother Marty preached Sunday night. A wind that blows through. That quick. The man didn't, it didn't take him weeks to get up. I know his muscles had deteriorated, but by faith, he rose, took up his bed, and walked away. When was Noah saved? When was Noah saved? Was it when the rain came? No. It was the very moment he entered into the ark and God shut the door. As soon as he walked inside, he was a saved man. Safe from the destruction. We that have been saved, it happens that quick. You see, there was a moment, a dead sinner, but just as the miracle of Lazarus and those in Sunday school this morning, when he speaks life into a soul, we rise up from that moment on and we are alive before God. And we have eternal life. It's not something we're going to have or going to possess. If you've been saved, you have passed from death unto life. You will never die. Already passed from death unto life. But when you're a sinner, you are dead. You have to pass from a dead state into a state of life. And you can't do that except God speaks peace to your soul. But you have to get to that point. Salvation's not hard. Getting to the point that you see yourself depraved with no hope that nothing I can do will make any difference. I just have to fall back into the hands of a mighty God. It's hard to get there. But once you get there and once you realize, hey, I'm dead. I can't make myself alive again. It'll have to be Jesus passing by and imparting His life into me or I will remain dead. And if you just trust Him and trust Him with your life and trust Him with your soul, that quick, something will take place on the inside. That man had no idea how depraved he was. He said, I'll never do those things that you're accusing me but he did. You might think I will never, ever do. And you might have good intentions. Even Peter meant every word when he said, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. And I'll never deny He meant what he said. 
But you see, sin has a way of drawing out. Sin, you know what sin does? It, can, it feeds upon the lust of your own heart. And so Satan knows your weakness. And whatever that is, that's what he'll feed you with. That's what he'll entice you with. That's what he draws you with. And before you know it, from head to toe, you're, you're sunk in sin. There is one that can take that all the way. His name is Jesus. I'm a sinner. I've got good news for you. He came to save the sinner. He came to save today. Today. You are totally depraved. And until you're born again, you remain totally depraved in a dead state. Dead. Dead before God. In order to stand before Him and enter into glory, life has to come in at some point. There has to be a birth. There has to be a moment you were dead and now I'm alive again. So I flatlined the night that God revealed to me I was lost. But there came a time at an altar of prayer He put life, He brought me back from the dead just like He did last night. Only this was spiritual. And it's eternal. How is it with you today? Are you alive? There's not a state between life and dead. You're either one or the other. How is it with you today? While we stand and sing, search your hearts. If God's dealing with you, you ought to come and seek Him. If He's dealing with you to tell an experience, you ought to do just that. We're still in revival and God ain't finished with us yet. God bless you is our prayer.